Every myth has some truth to it. We tell that to ourselves. Because we want to believe. Even when we may know better. This is the story of a man whose life at times seemed like a myth. At least the way some people told it. And this story begins with a videotape of a memorial service. It had long been rumored to exist. But what I actually saw left me stunned and desperate to know more. In the footage, a big man in camouflage fatigues and a black leather vest rumbles down the center aisle of All Saints Episcopal Church in Pasadena, California. He's an uninvited guest, and he's interrupting the service, determined to deliver this eulogy. He walks toward the altar. The people in the packed pews get a good look at the back of his vest. Street Racers International, President, Big Willie, it reads. The mourners look stunned. He turns to address them. Because you guys don't know the story of Otis, about how Otis bought the streets together after the watch rides back in 65. This is the memorial service for Otis Chandler. His family owned the Los Angeles Times for more than 100 years. It's 2006, four decades after the Watts riots ripped through South L.A. And this man, who no one seems to know, he's claiming that he and Chandler were friends for decades. I just got back from Vietnam. He gave me a nickname, Big Willie. It's hard to make out what he's saying. He's off mic. But this man is claiming that after he served in Vietnam, the L.A. Times wrote about him, and Chandler gave him the name Big Willie. He goes on to say that he used street racing to bring people together to heal a city torn apart first by the Watts riots, and later a long string of ugly upheavals. Otis Chandler started traveling streets with us. Many of the 900 or so in that room are titans of publishing and politics, and it's the first they've heard of this. You can see the skepticism on their faces. But then, something remarkable happens. Otis Chandler on the streets, by the gangbangers and everybody on the streets, they know him as Big O. The memorial erupts in applause. Big O is what Chandler's grandkids called him. Now this story that Big Willie and Chandler had been mixing it up with gangsters and racers down in South LA feels incredible but real. That these two men from entirely different worlds were bound by the magic of fast cars and a dream of mending their broken city. We brought the Crips and the Bloods, the Mexican Mafia, the Asian gang, the skinheads, the Nazi lowriders, and Willie isn't supposed to be there, but he wins over the audience anyway. And right now, I guarantee you he's racing in After the service, news accounts of Big Willie's unscripted eulogy focused on what it revealed about Chandler, that the street racer's presence proved that the mogul had been a man of the people. And maybe that's true. But the coverage mostly ignored an untold story. Big Willie's. So I went looking for that story. And what I found was that Big Willie transcended norms his entire life. He was a black man who bridged gulfs of race, class, and culture. He worked with the Crips and the Bloods, and even Klansmen. 
he got the powerful and the elite behind his cause, including movie stars, law enforcement, politicians, and of course, Otis Chandler. He gave people who otherwise might have been enemies an outlet to put aside their differences and race cars. And it worked. Crime went down, and violence was prevented when Big Willie got involved. Beat cops said it. L.A. City Councilman said it. And a former LAPD chief of police said that Willie saved lives. To do it, Willie Andrew Robinson III made himself into Big Willie, leader of the National and International Brotherhood of Street Racers. My name's Daniel Miller, and I'm a staff writer at the Los Angeles Times. Big Willie's story had been under my nose for years. From the first time I ever heard about this Vietnam vet turned street statesman, I wondered how he got to be this way. I soon became obsessed with Big Willie, his impact on Los Angeles, his legacy, and what I would eventually discover is more than I ever bargained for. It's the story of a man who became a legend at a time when the world didn't want him to amount to much of anything. He got his wish, but that wouldn't necessarily be a good thing. From the LA Times, this is Larger Than Life, a documentary podcast about street racer Big Willie Robinson. Are you happy that I have your Z and I'm driving it and then it's still with us? Yeah. Does it really drive good, though? It does, but, you know, I'm thinking of doing something. People have been saying you've got to put the SU carburetors back. I drive my grandfather Lou's 1972 Datsun 240Z, so it's probably obvious, but I'm a gearhead, too. I come from three generations of L.A. car dealers. This lifelong connection to cars is another reason I was drawn to Big Willie's story. Seven years after his death, Willie seems to have faded into obscurity, except among his fans and protégés, the people whose lives he touched. I wound up interviewing more than 100 of them. I talked to members of his brotherhood, a band of racers guided by Big Willie's vision of peace, fellowship, and speed. They invited me to barbecues at a clubhouse on South Central Avenue. They took me street racing in Compton. These people were determined to preserve his legacy. People like Fabian Arroyo. Okay, his mic's not on yet. It's about to be on. Yeah. Fabian, thank you for joining us and for dealing with all of our technical difficulties. All right, the pleasure's mine. I spent a lot of time with Fabian. I'm Fabian Arroyo. I am currently double nickels. That means 55 years old. Uh, I am a member of the Brotherhood of Street Racers. I am a vice president. I look like something out of Sons of Anarchy. If you saw pictures of me when I was younger, people say, what happened? Because I looked a lot better back then. Fabian grew up in the Los Feliz area of L.A., and at 14, he saw his first street race. He was hooked. He now owns 25 cars, including an old hearse with flames painted on the sides. Fabian's part of a vibrant subculture of street racers in Los Angeles, one partly shaped by Big Willie. Every night, somewhere in the city, racers in souped-up rides square off a quarter mile at a time. That is, until the cops break up the action. I've been at these races. It's electric, exhilarating, and very dangerous. It's also illegal. When I take my car out and I street race it, which I usually do once a week, that means I commit a felony every week. So I've committed probably 52 felonies in a year. 
But Big Willie made street racing much more than a middle finger to the law. To really understand how Willie changed the scene, you've got to grasp the mechanics of a race. In a typical street race, two cars line up side by side, preferably on a deserted road, picked because of the lack of stoplights, traffic, and pedestrians. Crowds huddle around the cars, calling out bets. Just before racing, the drivers do burnouts, keeping their cars stationary while they spin their wheels until the tires smoke. Why don't I let Fabian explain it? The whole key is to get the tires hot. And once you get the tires hot, they're hot and sticky. It grips the road. Smell the rubber. You hear the, the motor screaming. The tires are screeching. You're going racing. After the burnouts, a starter positions himself just ahead of the two vehicles, right in between them. With the drop of a hand or the flash of a mag light, the cars are off. In a matter of seconds, they travel an eighth or a quarter of a mile, a distance often marked by a lamppost or a tree. Down at the finish line, people will be gathered, including the person holding the money, whose job it is to call the race. But lots can go wrong before it's all over. Seeing cars go lose control, seeing cars crash into cars, seeing people just get run over. I mean, just feet run over, bounced off a car, you know, there's been some fires. I mean, the cars will blow up. Nitrous oxide, you blow a hood clean off a car. It's like somebody set a bomb. A lot of the danger is preventable, or at least the risks can be mitigated. And Willie did just that. He'd block off streets, and he'd even have a fire crew and a medical squad on hand. That's how he made races safer. But that's not really why crowds showed up. They came for a show, with Big Willie as the master of ceremonies. The six foot six racer did everything with bravado. He'd wear a derby hat and dress in all black. He clutched a bullhorn, and he'd stand on the back of a pickup truck so he truly towered over the proceedings. One street racer once said of Willie, What do you do when a 500 pound canary chirps? You listen. He was a celebrity. Fabian met Willie when he was 16. Later, he lived with him for a time. He really got to know Willie, and that was rare. Only a small circle knew him. I was fortunate to be in that circle. Fabian even recorded an interview with Willie in 2009 to document his life work. He shared it with me for this story. We ended up doing a kind of swap. Fabian knew Willie as well as anyone, but he only knew about certain times in his life. And I was learning a lot too. I would tell him the things I had discovered about Willie and ask for his opinion. And one of the first things I asked Fabian was simple. Why did Willie do it? Willie's mission in life was to save lives. We were his kids, and he took care of us, and he wanted to make sure we all lived to be gray and old instead of dying on the street like everybody else was doing. What sort of person would believe that he could steer the young and the impressionable away from gangs and drugs and keep them safe on the bleakest of streets? Someone outsized in every way. Larger than life, man. Like six foot six, 300 pounds. He's the man. His biceps were as big as my weight. It almost seemed like people wanted, maybe even needed Willie to be this way. Huge arms, man. It was as big as my head. Bigger than my legs. Giant. The vehicles he drove, muscle cars that were big and bad, perfectly matched him in size and spirit. Okay, this is a car that was banned from NASCAR because it was too fast. And they had the biggest wing on the back. You saw this car coming a mile away. Willie did it all, including a stint in show business, where even small parts as an actor led to big-name friendships. Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, there's nowhere you're going to find this, but he was asked to be Darth Vader. Most of Willie's acting gigs involve playing a version of himself, like his bit part in the 1970s cult classic Two Lane Blacktop. 
it was work that helped spread the message of the Brotherhood, and it made him unforgettable. Eventually, he'd go on to influence the blockbuster Fast and Furious franchise. But Willie wasn't just fast. He had the bombast of a leader and the soul of a peacemaker. This endeared him to most, and won him respect. But he'd also do whatever it took to keep the peace in L.A. Just listen to Brotherhood member Rodney Johnson recount the time Willie intervened when the Crips and Bloods were about to shoot it out. They didn't think he was serious about it until Willie pulled out a Thompson machine gun. And at that point, it was like everybody had that deer in the headlight look. (laughs) And after that, they squashed their beef, put their guns away, and it went back to all about racing. And it spread through the city. Someone this hardcore, this badass, must have his own theme song. The song's called Run What You Brung. It's about Willie, and it's from a 1977 movie called Joyride to Nowhere that he appeared in. Run What You Brung was Big Willie's motto. It meant that at a street race or a drag strip, all were welcome, and any vehicle and any person could get a race. But for Willie, it wasn't just about racing. Run What You Brung became his life's credo. It became his rallying cry in a city beset with racial problems. It meant he'd do anything to see his mission through. So how does someone become a person that actually has a theme song? My mother and my father instilled in us that we could do anything that we wanted to do, regardless of the boundaries or the obstacles that were placed in front of us. We could do it. That's Jean Davis Hatcher, Willie's little sister. They grew up in a big New Orleans family, five kids in all. The oldest of the bunch, Willie was born in 1942 and came of age in segregated Louisiana. His mother was the loving protector, and his auto body repairman father was a stern taskmaster. Willie has one other living sibling, Don Ray Robinson. On the edges of his voice, you can hear Big Willie, but he can be difficult to understand. For Don, it was tough being the son of a body and fender man. You know, my dad, my dad, that's the coldest thing. When Willie and Don acted out or failed to live up to expectations, they'd be sent to work at their father's body shop. So working for their dad didn't necessarily kindle a deep love of automobiles. Not for Don and not for the man who later became known as the king of the street racers. Because it was painful, Don showed me his scars. I sand the cars down to get them ready to paint. Man, look here. Why? I don't have no fingerprints. Their father, who was also named Willie, paid neighborhood kids $3 for each car they sanded. But the rules were different for family. Man, that motherfucker gave me a dollar. He gave me a dollar. It seems like Don had it worse than Willie. After all, Willie's father bought him a car, a 1953 Oldsmobile 98. It was a handsome ride drenched in chrome and powered by a big V8. And at that time in New Orleans, having a car as a young black man, even a used one, was a big deal. Still, Willie's relationship with his dad feels distant at best. Here's Fabian. He was close to his mom and I know his grandma, but he never really mentioned his dad. He did mention his dad that taught him a lot of stuff, but he never mentioned anything about having... Like a a close relationship, I guess. Don told me their parents separated in 1958 and later divorced. But Willie was fortunate. He attended one of the best public schools catering to the city's African-American community, Walter L. Cohen High School. It fostered Willie's dreams, 
1960 Cohen yearbook, the one from his senior year, Willie said becoming a doctor was his life's ambition. And to classmate Lloyd Gavin, Willie's gifts were evident even then. I always thought he was, he was going to do great things because he, he had dreams. And that was highly unusual where I grew up for a black male to have dreams. And he said he was going to join uh, the special ops. I didn't know what special ops was. Willie's confidence was inspiring. There wasn't very much you could hope for. The only thing a black man could do in New Orleans is, number one, he could work as a longshoreman unloading ships. He could be a pimp. He could be a preacher. Or he could drive a cab. That's it. Okay, now Willie comes along, and Willie is talking things I'd never heard of. Special ops. I mean, it's like it didn't exist to him. Because he was saying, I'm bringing all this to its knees, and they're going to listen to me. I mean, it was like a Martin Luther King dream. Willie offered a vision of hope when it was easy to be hopeless. In 1960, Willie enrolled at Louisiana State University in New Orleans, which two years earlier had become the first public university in the South to integrate. He was going to make good on his ambition to become a doctor. In this environment, he saw how cars could unite people. I was among the first blacks to go to Louisiana State. What won over my classmates, the white classmates, was my car. A few, anyway. What they called the White Citizen Council, which was, you know, another word for Klan, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, they would drive onto the campus and they would holler out, go home, the N-word. There were students beaten up. And Willie's car, the one that at first had helped him make friends, became a target. He discussed what happened to it on a TV show called Car Crazy. I came out of history class one day and my car was wiped out. My windshield, the side windows, my tires was cut. I mean, you know, luckily my dad has a body shot. <laughs> In the right business. That's right. His conversation with the TV host comes complete with laughs and a happy ending. It's strange. I played it for Fabian. When he was on that show, he was being nice. He was being polite. But when he really talked about it, he was upset. That car was a gift from his dad, so it meant a lot to him. And it was just devastating when it was destroyed. Willie knew better than to show his anger on TV. He had media savvy. He probably realized that audiences might not want to hear a raw tale of racial violence on a lighthearted show. Regardless, even if Willie's father could repair his damaged car, things soon got even worse for him, leading to his departure from New Orleans. His sister Jean told me about it. One day, their mother got a tip from a white colleague that she should call Willie at school and tell him to leave immediately. By the time he got home, they had um, placed explosives in the colored student's parking lot and blown up everyone's cars. It's hard to verify this exact episode, but other menacing incidents at the school have been documented. Jean said their mother truly feared for her eldest son's life, so she pulled him out of school and made plans to send him far from New Orleans. We don't want anybody to die. We just wanted to get out of there. By the end of 1960, Willie was sent to Los Angeles. It was a logical choice. During the Great Migration, L.A. was among the most alluring destinations for black Southerners. Willie moved out to L.A. ahead of the rest of his family, 
And at first, he didn't have much. But he brought some good advice. This is what my grandmother would always tell us. And she always said, there's no such word as can't. You can do anything. Or she would say, oh, can't is dead. Can't is dead. That mantra would soon serve Willie well. He had some hard times early on in L.A. For a while, there was little to no money. Willie's dream of becoming a doctor soon fell by the wayside, partly because he needed to earn a living. And starting in 1962, he found work doing something he'd once viewed as punishment. But this time, things were different. I had to fall back on a trade that my dad taught me. <laughs> a guy named Maury Sloan had a, a body shop. I started working at the body shop. And, and then that's when I decided to buy me and get me a 57 Oldsmobile. And so right away, there was two Jewish street racers that lived next door to the body shop. They said, Willie, how would you like to, you know, go to the street races? I got a chance to meet the white racers and I got a chance to meet everybody. So Willie was working at the body shop, working on his car, and working on his abilities behind the wheel. But something else was happening. The Vietnam War was escalating. Each year, more and more Americans were being drafted. And as Willie once put it, in 1964, the military said to him, Hey, Uncle Sam needs you now. Neither side relishes the prospect of indefinite hostilities, least of all the civilians who increasingly fall victim to the tragic horrors of the war that rages about them. Big Willie said his service included top-secret work for one of the military's most vaunted fighting forces. Fighting soldiers from the sky Fearless men who jump and die Men who mean just what they say The brave men of the Green Beret I became Special Forces Green Beret for the United States Army because technically we didn't exist. We were like James Bond. Yes, we were trained like James Bond. Our bosses in Vietnam was the CIA. So Willie never specified what he did for the CIA in Vietnam. But tales of his heroics live on as lore through his friends, family, and members of the Brotherhood. But I remember something about jumping out of an uh, airplane with a parachute. Now he was a demolition bomb technician, special forces. He got the Purple Heart. I mean, he was the man. Willie's service was brief. He said he came home in 1966 after a serious injury. It was um, a covert situation. We we were ambushed, uh, hit in the left leg, uh, twice in the left leg, and once in the right hip. Among those close to Willie, the best-known story of his service is that fateful ambush. Fabian, Don, and several others told me about it. After being attacked, Willie was saved by a soldier he described years later as a Mexican-American man from Texas. This rescue was said to have reinforced his belief that people of all backgrounds could set aside their differences. Brotherhood member Donald Galaz remembers the story well. Willie was uh, injured during a firefight. He was put down, and uh, Willie was left out there. The opposition was definitely closing in on him, and uh, Rodriguez came out and saved him. And as live fire was taking place, from what I was told, he drug Willie back into the bush and saved Willie's life. Vietnam not only changed Willie's perspective, it shaped his life's mission. He had survivor's guilt, real bad. He was one of the few people that came out of Vietnam surviving when all the other people he went there with did. 
So he, that bothered him a lot. Willie returned to L.A. in pain, wondering why he'd been spared. In that anguish, he wrestled with other questions, even bigger ones. Who would Willie Andrew Robinson III become next? And what was his real purpose? All this time, I've been feeling guilty by coming home, surviving the war. And my buddies are still over there dying and losing parts of their bodies. But I come home, and I'm still in one piece. And so it dawned on me, God spared me from dying in Vietnam to come home and be Big Willie. Becoming Big Willie. That was easier said than done. He'd have to win over law enforcement. And remember, he's a black man, and this is the LAPD of the 1960s, a force infamous for its racism and brutality. To have the policeman to say, we're going to help you, I just, that to me was unheard of. I said, man, that's incredible. I mean, police never gave black people anything. He'd go on to bring people together who you'd never think could be in the same room. Sworn enemies, hate groups, movie stars, and millionaires. You could be the Ku Klux Klan, you could be the Aryan Nation, you could be the Crips, you could be the Bloods. When you come around Willie, all that stops. Willie would do anything to bring people together. You could be strapped, we don't care. I just want you guys to come in peace. A message of peace. Willie would soon get his chance to spread it through an unlikely means street racing. To do this, he'd invent an almost mythical version of himself, one that would transform a city. But he could only become Big Willie after a riot unraveled L.A., a tycoon took an interest in his illegal activities, and the LAPD cooked up a radical idea. As for Willie Robinson the man, there'd be real-life consequences. That's next time on Larger Than Life. And here's what's coming up in future episodes. The people of Watts, California riot, crying, burn, baby, burn. He had friendships with people that you would never think he had friendships with. Robert Mitchum, Sidney Poitier, Steve McQueen. He had survivor's guilt real bad. He was one of the few people that came out of Vietnam surviving. How do people know what war was all about? What we fought for, the blood that was shed, the grief for the family members? How do they know if all the stories are made up? He's not laid back, Willie. He's big, step into your zone, Willie. Originally, they were going to take toes off. Then they're taking foot off. Then they were taking his leg off. I told Willie, you have to get better because I go, I'm not going to your funeral. So God, this is it. This is why you spared me, to be Big Willie and the leader of the street races and bring people together. Larger Than Life is reported and written by me, your host, Daniel Miller, for the Los Angeles Times. Our producer is Grant Irving. The editor is Catherine St. Louis. Kimmy Yoshino is our story supervisor. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Additional production by Karin Navatia. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Turek. Music by Nolan Schneider and Grant Irving. 
The sound engineer is Mike Heflin. Research by Scott Wilson, fact-checking by Laura Bullard, and copy editing by Rubena Azhar. Larger Than Life was recorded at Los Angeles Times Studios in El Segundo, California. The archival audio in this episode is courtesy of British Pathé and Peter Jones Productions. For more on Big Willie Robinson, including videos, photo galleries, and essays, visit latimes.com slash larger than life. Join our Facebook group. You can find us at Larger Than Life Podcast to discuss the story. And I'm on Twitter at Daniel N. Miller. You can also learn more about the story by subscribing to our Play Next newsletter. Go to latimes.com slash playnext. Larger Than Life is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. Larger Than Life is a production of LA Times Studios with support from Neon Hum Media. The chief then spoke to the mayor. The mayor said, Bring me.